The confrontation of Alma and Amulek with the priests of Nahor in the city of Ammonihah. Right in the middle of the Book of Mormon is one of the more gruesome acts in all of Christian history. It also presents the power of Melchizedek versus the power of the Nahors as they assumed it. This fascinating section of Alma and Amulek in Ammonihah is detailed, it is dense, and it contains so much about the power of God and how he works. Join us today in this very interesting section of uh, the Book of Mormon, which is so open to so many ways of looking at it. I was, I was stunned by all that is there. I, I hope you can see that too. Thanks for joining us. And welcome to another Monday Morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, Opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within its pages. And now, on to the class. Okay. Uh, so welcome, uh, welcome Institute. If, if, uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to the recording, I'm, I know that, uh, as I'm now recording off of my, uh, ear pod, probably not hearing as much of those, the give and take sometimes in the class. So that's why I'm trying to repeat questions a little bit more. Uh, but the sound is so much better for anybody listening, uh, wherever they're listening from. So. Okay, uh, that said, um, uh, had had a little uh, thought that, that came up this week, and I wanted to bounce the idea off you. So here's here's today's thought. I realized, well, I'll just give it to you, and then we can kind of deconstruct it. The ultimate goal of the plan of salvation. If you think about the the moment the plan of salvation really kind of begins is when the Savior presents the plan. Uh, and part and parcel of being able to present the plan, uh, the, the plan of salvation, uh, was the, the incredible gift of agency that, that we received in that setting. And I realized that the ultimate goal of the plan of salvation, really, if you think about it, is to expand eternally our gift of agency that one of the differences fundamentally between, along with some other things, but one of the blessings or one of the gifts that our heavenly parents have that we don't have is that they either have more agency than we do or they have the same agency, but they have more knowledge to know what to what their list of choices are available to them. Does that make sense? So if you think about this cycle that we go through, 
in life, and we're going to actually kind of see it play out, I think, in, in Ammonihah, is that, uh, for, for instance, when I'm, when I'm growing up in small town, Layton, Utah, but I've got, uh, I've got two parents, I'm being raised in the church, you know, and I'm living in a nice area and I get to go to school and, uh, and when I look at what my, the options available to me in the rest of my life is, is pretty open. Now, obviously I might look at myself and say, I don't think if one of my options was to play in the NBA, you know, and I'm looking at my size, probably not on the, on the radar, but my list of options is pretty great. And I think at that very same day that I was born, a little guy being born um in a to a home in a homeless shelter in Harlem, New York, uh in a set of poverty. And you think about how many options does he think he has? How what what's open to him? And that my list of possibilities is, is has a bigger bandwidth than what he would have had. And isn't it interesting, but he has the same agency as I do. He was still gifted with the gift of agency in the pre-existence. But part of what expands our agency, our ability to grow, is is our knowledge. We have to be taught what the possibilities are. We have to believe those possibilities are there. Then based on that, we start to grow. We have life experiences that teach us what we can do and what we can't do. But over time, in mortality, our knowledge space is always growing. <clears throat> and as our knowledge grows, in a sense, our our access to a wider range, it expands our agency. Does that make sense? Yes. Your knowledge base uh, widens its opportunity to solve the problem. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, the, the fact that my my clerk didn't understand that in his mind, it's just like, well, there's no way we can give her access to the leader information but i i knew enough about well then there's some uh, other options check for this and check for this up oh, that's in the handbook yep that works okay let's go um and but I, I just think it's interesting that part of what we're trying to do in life is it's all it all hinges when joseph smith said we are saved no faster than we have knowledge well that knowledge becomes critical because that knowledge expands our options and that expansion of our options i think expands our i don't know if it expands our agency or at least our access to agency okay yeah so so i guess i'm going to play the the uh, advocate you've never done that before this would be a new experience for you but you go And he may have. If what you did was appropriate because a person in her calling needed those tools, then there's 4,000 units in the church that don't have that available for the person in that calling. And, and maybe uh, sending a query to LCR about why doesn't this person have it, they might need it for these reasons. Well, I think so. Useful. Yeah. Rather, uh, rather than circumventing the system. Yeah, yeah, and so you're just trying to solve the problem in the in the short run, but you but see now you're saying, okay, uh we're going to what's the term in the uh 
technical world if you're going to bump it up to the next level. <laughs> Not hack. <laughs> I mean, to, to do it legally. Uh, uh, escalate. Escalate through it. We'll just escalate it to somebody who has more knowledge. So do they have more agency than me? I don't know. But they have more ability. to. They have more understanding about when it gets escalated. And and that authority then to be able to act on it, because I can have knowledge, but do I have the authority to then act on that knowledge? Um, I, I just think that's so. So I, I say this as a backdrop, okay? Uh, to watch watch what happens here, because there is an interesting clash that's about to happen that happens at Ammonihah, and you watch how Alma is going to work with that a little bit. And, and I think Alma would say, and there's probably some things I wish I could have taken back, things I wish I wouldn't have said. But we learn, okay? So let's go to, let's start off here. Let's go to uh, Alma 8. And remember, this is, this is still, as we were kind of talking about, this is still Alma, uh, who's had, you know, good success at, in Zarahemla, and he goes over to Malik, and then things are going cool there. Then he's going to go up the road to Ammonihah, and run into a buzzsaw. Okay? Um, so he goes in to preach at Ammonihah, and 11, nevertheless, they hardened their hearts, uh, saying unto him, we know that thou art Alma, and we know that thou art a high priest in the church, which thou hast established in many parts of the land according to what? Your tradition. That you have this tradition. And we are not of thy church, so what? We do not believe in those foolish traditions. In other words, you have a set of traditions you go by. And I think we're going to define in a second what those traditions are. And we don't believe them. We have our own better, more better traditions. Okay? And, and we're going to get some hints about what those traditions might be. We don't have enough to really fully, completely put meat on the bone, but we certainly get some hints. Uh, and now we know because we are not of thy church. We know that was, has no power over us. Okay? So, I'm not going to go through the whole story because we know this story pretty well, right? He gets rejected. Then he's going to go alone. Then the angel says, by the way, it's his angel. He says, I was the same angel that kind of uh, caused you to repent. Uh, so, turn around, go back. There's people here. We've got to go get them. Okay, I'm going back. He goes in, he's not, he's hungry, he runs into Amulek, who got talked to by the same angel, and, and Alma's gonna go hang out with Amulek for a while until it's time to go preach. Okay, now.
part of in trying to there's some there's some real value here in understanding at least what the what the Nahors were trying to do. Okay. Um, and I want I want to set this up a little bit here. Uh, so now he's going to go out and he's going to preach. Verse one of Alma nine, he begins to preach that are, they're going to contend. And then look at verse two. Okay. So sometimes sometimes we get a sense of what they believe and who they are by the arguments they use. Who art thou? Verse two. Suppose ye that we believe in the testimony of one man. Oh, really? Although he should preach unto us that the earth should pass away. Now, I've highlighted this in, in verse three and verse five, uh, cause I love this. Uh, there's a commentary being thrown in in the middle of Alma's words. And I don't know if it's Alma's words, a commentary to his own speech. Or if this is Mormon's commentary later on. I think it's Alma's because we get some additional stuff. But sometimes the Book of Mormon can be really kind of vague on some things. We're going to run into a really vague vagarity here pretty quick. But so so he steps out of this for a minute. It's like, like he can step out of character. They're going to say in verse 2, Who art thou, suppose ye, that we believe in the testimony of one man? Verse 3. <clears throat> Now, let me explain to you, kind reader. (laughs) See, now they understood not the words which they spake, for they knew not that the earth could pass away. Like, but they just didn't understand. Okay. Verse four, and they said, we will not believe thy words. If thou shouldst prophesy, this great city should be destroyed. Now they knew not that God should could do such marvelous works. <laughs> okay, it's almost like whoever this is turns to the camera and go, <laughs> they don't understand, do they? Okay, <laughs> back in back in character. <laughs> okay, and they said, "Who is God?" Right now, I want to take the first part because I, I think this this plays some role. Who art thou? First, that we should believe in the testimony of one man. I want to go back to, I'm going to hop over now to Deuteronomy 19. Because Deuteronomy 19 gives us some hint that at at some level they believed in the law of Moses. How much? We just don't, how, did they completely believe in the law of Moses or did they use the law of Moses to get what they wanted? Don't know. But there are some elements that are going to appeal to the law of Moses to pull off what they pull off, both in shutting down Alma and Amulek and then the martyrdom that comes. They're going to they're going to appeal, it looks like, in some way to the law of Moses or some variation of the law of Moses. Because if you go back to Deuteronomy. Rudon, the the. Deuteronomy is going to set the rule of witnesses. How do you solve disputes? How do you how do you decide what's true? Verse 15, Deuteronomy 19. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity. In other words, the voice of one man doesn't work. For any sin, in any sin that he sinneth, 
at the mouth of how many witnesses? Two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. But how, how many witnesses to the Book of Mormon? Three. And then how many saw the plates? Eleven plus Joseph. That's twelve. Okay. If, if we're going to have a baptism, how many witnesses do we have for the baptism? Two. If we're going to make covenants in the temple, who all is witnessing what we do? We're going to do it before God, angels, and these witnesses. Yeah, and those two witnesses are there. Yeah. But, but it's, it's still reasonable, and it was reasonable for them in the day to say we are not going to accept the word of one witness. And when we're sitting in sacrament meeting and someone's up there preaching at the pulpit, that's one person. Yeah. And we should never accept their word without a second witness. Yeah, yeah. And the second witness usually ought to be the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. So even and even even when we're when we're learning about uh, establishing truth, isn't it interesting the Book of Mormon says, uh, well, what what the Lord was saying to Oliver Cowdery at the time that Oliver was trying to translate the Book of Mormon uh, in in DNC nine, he says, you will know where. In your mind and in your heart, one of the ways to establish truth is two witnesses. OK, now. In the Deuteronomic law, and this was going to be, uh, especially if somebody is uh, s- sinning or they are they are uh, disputing with you, and they think you stole something from me or something like that, the law of witnesses kick, kicks in. It becomes kind of important here. So, one witness shall not rise up against the man, uh, or in the mouth of two witnesses. Um, Now, 16, if a false witness shall rise up against any man to testify against him that that is wrong, then both men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and judges, which shall be in those days. Now, I don't want to make this too complicated, but uh, what is one of the one of the the uh, Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not do what? Bear false witness. False witness. So in our Judeo-Christian way we set it up, if somebody's going to stand on the witness stand and, and witness against somebody, I saw him shoot her or something like that, okay? We're going to make sure that before they take the witness stand, what do we have them do? Do you swear, and it was on the Bible, right? Do you swear that you will tell the truth? In other words, you, do you swear that you won't be a false witness? Because the biggest thing that can happen when you're trying to establish truth is somebody would bear false witness. So when we're talking about false witnesses, one of the major laws, is it, it, the lying, don't, don't lie really is falls into this range because false witnesses could be really dangerous. A witness is an important thing. And if you're going to lie about what you witness, then the whole thing crumbles. Okay. So bear, the definition of bear could be to carry the witness. To carry the witness. But it's also 
if you bear things when you receive it. You say, I can't bear this. And so we're not only, in my mind, commanded not to come up with stories about people, but we're also commanded not to accept or tolerate or continue ah. stories that we don't know to be true. I, I like that. In other, what, he, what he's saying is, is that if the, the, the word bear can mean a lot of things, but if bear means to carry, I'm going to, uh, it, it could be expose, depending on which form of bear you're going to use, but, but to carry a, a false witness means to carry on the story, carry on the falsehood. Okay. So think about that, guys, when we start talking about traditions. And why the Lamanites did what they did based on somebody bearing false witness. Laman and Lemuel bore false witness about how they lost the plates, how they lost their authority, you know. So it's just, it's just really fascinating, okay? Alright, so, so you have one, you gotta have one. So it's a, things are established in the mouth of two witnesses. Uh, then they're going to stand before the Lord. And also the idea is in verse 17, they're going to stand before the Lord, before the priests and judges, which shall be in those days. And 18, the judges shall make diligent, diligent, that's a good word, diligent inquisition. And if a witness be a false witness, they're going to have to determine, in other words, bearing false witness, uh, lying on the stand, uh, turning in a false report to police, uh, bearing false witness is a big deal because everything that we do in the law of witnesses depends on being a true witness. Okay. All right. Now, this becomes also important then. What if they do? What if you, what if it's determined that somebody bore the witness? They carried a story that wasn't accurate. This city shall be destroyed because you guys are bad. Okay. What if you're bearing that false witness? Okay. Now look at this. 18. After they've made diligent inquisition, 19. Then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to have done unto his brother. Oh. And so shall thou put the evil away from you. And those who remain shall hear and fear. Those who remain shall hear and fear. Now, through this whole thing, I want you to take just a step back. Think about, because we're going to get there in a sec. Think about what happened in Ammonihah. Think about the moment that Alma and Amulek are watching the place of the martyrdom, watching people be destroyed and then and then let's look again uh, then the judges will make diligent inquisition 19 then shall thou do unto him as he thought to have done unto his brother oh they're going to make some accusations against what's going to happen to the people in Ammonihah and you do to them what they said they would do to you or what was going to happen to you you do the same thing. And what did Alma say? Well, I'm not going to go there yet, but think about that. Whatever he said, you do to him and then cast him out and have other people stand as a witness. Two witnesses. Yeah. It, it, it might be just a 
lie about somebody committing a murder. Yeah. And the penalty for yeah. is they get executed. Well, the penalty for lying about somebody doing that is you get executed. Right. Now, if your lie is about somebody stealing a sheep, and the penalty for that is return fourfold or right. something like that, then when you get caught in that lie, you have to return fourfold. Yeah. So it's that's... I, I know. Would it rise to the level of that equality? How, but here's what happened, and it happened among the Greeks, and it happened among the Sadducees, and to a certain extent, I think it happens here. Who's going to argue what would be equal? How are you going to determine what's equal? There's a role for somebody to argue using the law as your, as, as, as your plate, to twist the law the where, where you want it to go, and who would do that? The attorneys. It's the job of the attorneys, think Zeezrom, to move it where you want to go and make a case for that. Okay? So when the lawyers and the prophets used to come in and talk to someone who had done something wrong, they would tell them, hey, somebody did this. What should we do about it? Yes. And that's still yeah. protected. And so therefore, the accuser tells you what they want to have done about it. Yeah. And then, then you know what, what the right. penalty is. But I'm going to hire the best orator in Greece, or I'm going to hire the best attorney to make sure that vengeance gets served. That the highest, because remember, even when they get to the penalty phase, in our modern judicial system, in the, in the, Penalty phase, and there's the jury box, and these turn, there are attorneys that are going to say, let me tell you why the penalty should be huge. And it's the job of the other one to go, no, it shouldn't be that bad. <laughs> I realize we said he's guilty, but one is going to be saying, go for, just, just lies. Put him in an electric chair. Just get him. Okay? And the other one says, eh, maybe we should just get time served. <laughs> and somewhere, somewhere. So, anyway, I just, I just need to see. There is, this is one of those reasons why it is a lot of scholars look at the Nahors and say, at some level, they appear to be appealing to Deuteronomic law. Did they keep the whole law? Did they keep any of it? We don't know. But we do know that they seem, because there's a couple of other points at which they'll do it. And then what, because listen to their argument and they'll make the argument about they were really looking at the law a lot. Yeah. Great point. Right. Yeah, our 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 Judeo Christian law is based on what's on the books, but it's also based on settled law. In other words, when the Supreme Court is looking at things, they're also looking at how have other courts traditionally ruled on something. They're looking at uh, other cases going far back. It's based on, can we say it again? Tradition. Okay, we're looking at traditions to determine how to, how, how this should be, uh, administered. Okay, so. Yeah. So, uh, that's true of the 
Western world. Right? Yes. So if you look at courts um, in the United States or in Great Britain, you know, um, we use the concept of stare decisis to make decisions related to jurisprudence, which yeah. is exactly what you were explaining. You look at the history, you look at traditions, you look at, and then, you know, and that laws that were previously created are unchanged so that there's stability in the law. Right? Yes. Okay. But I, I, I was just wanted to make that comment. But another thing I was going to say is that I, it seems to me, right, and, you know, you guys are much more educated on this than me. And I'd love to oh, listen, we're all in the soup together, man. <laughs> I, I think that um, it seems to me that the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament were basically commandments. They were, they were laws that were enforceable in a civil society. Through, oh, um, yeah. Through laws. So when we say commandments, you know, now we think of like religious commandments. But in a, in a, in a theocracy, religious commandments are, are actually, um, you know, enforceable laws. Yeah. Right? So the difference, you know, what I was thinking of as I was listening to this dialogue is the difference between, um, you know, the Ten Commandments versus the new law that was given to the people when Jesus Christ came, right, right, you know, love one another. The things that Jesus Christ taught were basically not really so enforceable through law, because the Sadducees and the Pharisees, right, like they're they're they had this insane, crazy focus on take so many steps in a day, don't right, 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 yeah, yeah, that head. But when but when Jesus came. You know, yeah. and this is, this is, I guess, the part where I'm looking for some kind of verification, if you, you know, you guys agree with this, is that what Jesus Christ taught, you know, you think of like the Beatitudes, those things, even if you were in a theocracy, like if, let's say we're all in Iran, and, you know, we're, you know, we study the Quran, right, and it's like everybody has to be, you know, Muslim, right. well, if one of the commandments in the Quran was love one another, how do you enforce that? You cannot enforce that. That's a higher law, and that's the point of what Jesus said. That, that's interesting, right? Yeah. If if I'm going to give, if I'm going to suggest that if a man asks you for a coat, you should give him two. There's no setup to then say, and we will penalize you if you don't give your other coat. Right. That we're not going to penal we we're we're not going to penalize you if somebody uh, smites you on the the cheek that you turn the other cheek. Now you're right. The so so those are some higher lot. Now the way that our mortal minds think sometimes we want to somehow codify, which is what the Pharisees kept trying to do. I'm going to somehow take a law and I'm going to. How do we know that I'm doing it? How do we know? See if if we don't do that. It's going to sound kind of like cynical, but if we don't have a way of just determining whether you smote the the other cheek or not, how do I know if I'm better than you? <laughs> you know, how do you know I'm doing it and you're not? Uh, one of the ways we can do it is start counting how far you walk on the Sabbath or how, how many, how much you harvest. There was a certain amount of who's holier or the very least, I'm going to know that I'm being holy because some of those are so love one another. What does that mean to love one another? Whoa. How do I know I did it? How do I know at the end of the day 
Um, one of the things that I've started working with uh, in my in my practice is scrupulosity. That's a fun one. That is, how do I? That's saying, am I scrupulous enough? Am I doing enough? Have I kept the commandments enough? When have I not done enough? And I might be going to hell or at least the terrestrial kingdom. When am I doing it enough? And we're talking about love and say, but how do I know that I'm loving? My my obsessive mind wants to codify it. So at the end of the day, I can check off the list and I know that I did it. I'm okay. And 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 it is scrupulosity is real. It's climbing because we're we're trying to somehow um, define what what those kind of things are, and it, it's tough, isn't it? Unless we're looking at what, unless our lives and the changed lives, our transformation becomes the testament of who I've become. Yeah. So two things. First, I'm wondering when Alan asks his question. Whether his question is about the difference between the Ten Commandments and the 613 laws, or whether the question is about the law and the the law being fulfilled and Christ bringing a new law, and we're no longer under the old law. Under the 613? Well, under the even the Ten. We're free from the law, and we're told that the commandments don't have a hold over us, but... We still obey them because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Not because it's the law, but because it's right. There is a. I don't want. I don't want to go too far down. This is. It's a good discussion. Um, but but one of the things that's interesting, even among uh, some committed atheists, uh, they have been. They're the first ones to say there is kind of somewhere built into us, this was Kierkegaard going, there's somewhere, no, Kant, it was Kant, uh, somewhere built into us an idea that some things are right and some things are wrong. There are good things and bad things. Child abuse is always bad things. Whether you believe in religion or not, child abuse is bad things. And you sense it. And, and it, it's an interesting thing that we have this moral sense of what is right and what is wrong. Okay? So, Hang on to those, okay? And, and let's, let's keep rolling, because I, I can go there all day. Um, so, but but what, what I want you to see is that if there is any level for the, for the Nahors of believing, following, uh, trying to use it as something to twist, that they had in their background from the, from the brass plates, some traditions that I think are deeply rooted in the law of Moses. Again, how much they used it, I don't know. But look at what they're going to do now. Okay, so so now let's flip over. Let's go back to Alma 9. So they're going to start here. Okay, testimony of a man. Well, there's only one guy here. Okay, we don't know that he should believe it. We, we should believe it. Um, and then they're going to challenge this. Um, they said, who is God, verse 6, that sendeth more authority than just one man to declare unto these, these amazing things? And they stood forth to put their hands on me. Uh, now, he stood with boldness. We don't know what that means. Does he do a Nephi I'm gonna, or an Abinadi and glow and don't get close to me and get zapped? <laughs> but 8, now, remember what they were saying. You're going to come around us with this stuff. 
We don't believe in your foolish traditions. He's going to say, verse 8, Oh, you wicked and perverse generation. How have you forgotten what? The tradition of who? Their fathers. Who are their fathers? Now, if they're saying we don't believe in your church, that's probably code for traditions of who? Who started the church in Zarahemla? Alma. Alma brought the church. Okay. He was the, and he said he's the creator of the church. So it's the traditions of Alma. His father and King Messiah. Those, those traditions. Look at what Alma, look at what Alma goes. You've forgotten, foolish people, you've forgotten the traditions of your fathers. So now he's going to trump them. Where's he going to go? Okay. Verse nine. Do ye not remember that our father Lehi was brought out of Jerusalem by the hand of God? I will take, I will take your Mosiah tradition and I will trump it with Lehi tradition. There are, I know you guys are thinking that this is false traditions. Let's talk about common traditions that we have and common fathers. Let's take it all the way back to Lehi. I'm gonna, I got the trump card. We're not, okay, I'm not gonna, he spends no time arguing about King Benjamin or Messiah. None. But this is all gonna be on, and he's gonna go even farther back than that. And where he goes is kinda cool, okay? Traditions of your fathers, Lehi, verse 9, uh, 10. Have you forgotten how soon he delivered, and listen to this inclusive language. Um, verse 10. And these words are so critical. I, 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 there's so much here. Uh, I don't want to make it so dry, but look at how he does this. Because it's brilliant. Have ye forgot, verse 10. Have ye forgotten so soon how many times he delivered whose fathers? Our fathers. What did he just do by using our fathers? He made it inclusive, meaning they brought them together. It brought them together as a unit. Yeah, your fathers and my fathers are the same. Our fathers. I'm going to go back to our common fathers, Lehi. Because now they can't say, no, your foolish traditions, we have ours. He goes, no, our fathers. It's an inclusive language. Okay? Delivered our fathers out of their enemies. And if it, and then he's going to kind of go from there. And then he's going to start teaching them about uh, Lehi. Um so and, and by the way, so 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 that we understand about traditions and fathers, look at now what he says. Now there are some other traditions. Verse sixteen: For there are many promises which were extended to the Lamanites, for it is because of the traditions of their fathers, Laman and Lemuel. And those that took, bore those, bore that false witness forward that caused them to remain in their state of ignorance. Therefore, the Lord will be merciful unto them. Okay. Now, let me, let me stop for a second. 
because I, I, I think in the church, I, I don't want to digress too much, but I just want to drop something in here. We are in, we are literally, we've talked about this. We're, I think we're literally in the midst of an interesting, subtle shift happening in the church. That for years and years, as Richard Bushman used to say, our history is our theology. You want to know about the Mormon church? What am I, how do I tell you what the church is about? Gold plates, sacred grove, Pioneers, it was always about the traditions of our fathers, which didn't always make sense to the people in Japan. You know, I'm not really sure about the hand cards. That sounds good. Okay. But that's always been our belief. Our, our theology has been our history, our traditions. Now, now, if you walk around this building or any other church building, what are you going to see? What What is our theology Jesus Christ so the historical pictures are going and gone there are pictures of the Savior scenes of the Savior we're focusing on the Savior so here, here's my question but what one of the things that we share as Latter-day Saints any any part of the world is that we do have a shared history Sometimes all the way back to Joseph Smith, but if you live in, if if you're in, uh, like my friend in in uh, state president in Cancun, his history is not Utah. <laughs> he has his own history of the people that were the forefathers, the pioneers in their. What role does these days? What role does our history play in our in our religion? I think that the one thing that you could say that's a shared history across cultures and across nations and groups and people or whatever is yeah. a shared story of convergence of the gospel. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, if you're, if you go and you read the Book of Mormon and receive a testament or a witness of, uh, you know, of the truthfulness of the gospel, that is going to, that experience is going to translate. Oh, that translates really well, doesn't it? If you have a testimony and somebody in the Philippines also read the same book and got the same testimony. That's right. Yeah. So I, I don't think, I don't think that there's really very much that you can, you know, that people can relate to via history, but right. they can relate to each other via their, their own spiritual conversions and experiences. I like that. Uh, I like the idea that there is, that maybe when we're talking about traditions, there's a tradition of of how we get answers to prayers. Yeah. I think that as a convert, when I was a child and at a teenager, Oh, we did. As a convert, you felt left out. Yes. Yes. You didn't have that well on or gathered with or drink with. Your friends did. Yeah. No. And now, because we focus on Christ, everyone is more on an equal playing ground. And when you come in, you feel okay. It's much more inclusive. I think that's a great point. That in that effort, while we were immersed in our history as our theology, it had a tendency to exclude people that weren't of pioneer stock. And and by the way, these days, if you start taking a look at the the vast 
membership of the church. How many are, are of literal pioneer stock? Oof. Yeah, it's a smaller and smaller minority of that. So, so one of the beautiful things that President Nelson has really championed is kind of moving this forward to say our theology is Jesus Christ. Our name is Jesus Christ. Our focus is Jesus Christ. And we're all children of the covenant. See, in a sense, that was, we've talked about this, it's one of those things that drove the Jews crazy with the Apostle Paul. For him to walk into Corinth and say to the Jews, uh, by the way, these Romans over here that decided to join with us today, if, they, if they're baptized, guess what? They join the covenant. Which covenant are we talking about? They're, they're heirs to all the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not Jews. I know. Isn't that weird? Jews and, you know, Romans and Greeks and, and everybody gets to be part of all the blessings given to Abraham. You know, okay, that's the point at which they says, okay, beat him. <laughs> so, somebody get out the rocks and get this guy out of the synagogue. <laughs> beat him now. <laughs> yeah. That is really our history. Ah, okay. So she says that the preexistence then enters into this as well. Okay, now let, let's let's take that because there's actually you actually set me up nicely. Thank you very much. Yes, you did. Okay, cool. Okay, because th- this this part with Alma and Amulek is just ugh. the 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 more I the more I dig in it, the cooler it gets. So I'm going to bypass a lot of the discussion. Because Alma's going to go to a really interesting place. But before he does, I'm going to take you to there. Alma 12. Part of his discussion here, Alma's going to use a phrase that is going to be used against him and it's going to be used against the martyrs. And, and, uh, guys, this phrase is never, this is so traumatic and it's so painful that this phrase is never again used in the Book of Mormon. You won't find it. It's not there. Now, was it there and Mormon edited it out or was it so painful that whatever prophet was going to preach never used this phrase again? Don't know. All we know, it's never repeated again in the Book of Mormon. Because at the end of this preaching, here's what Alma's going to say to them. Uh, Verse 17. Then you die the spiritual death. Then is the time when their torment shall be as a lake of fire and brimstone, whose flame ascendeth up forever and ever. He's telling the people in Ammonihah, if you don't repent, you're going to be thrown into a lake of fire and brimstone. And and they will use this to justify what they do at the martyrdom. They are very, very literal. And not only that, if you really want to stamp it out and justify yourself and your attorneys can pull it off. That, that phrase, a lake of fire and brimstone whose flame ascendeth. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you what, I will. I'm going to quickly hop over just so you can see it. 
jumping way to the end here. Uh, they're going to say, there it is, verse 14. Remember, after, after the, the martyrdom, the chief judge of the land is going to say and stand before Alma and Amulek and smote him with his hand and said, after, after what you've seen, will you preach again unto this people that they will be cast into a lake of fire and brimstone? He's going to use Alma's words as the pretext to do what they did. And, and I believe at, for whatever martyr, whatever we can look and, and just be amazed by the sacrifice. I don't think we can begin to touch the trauma and horror and pain. Can you imagine if you're a missionary and you baptize a bunch of people and then you get to watch them be consumed in front of you and you might say, that's a marvelous thing that they were willing to sacrifice for their testimony. At some level, yeah, but you're watching people that you love writhe in agony as they burn. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Only if he testified of something falsely. That's right. That's right. So all this testimony about what will happen in the future, if it is your belief, can't touch you. Can't touch you. That's, That's why right. They worked so hard to try and get these guys in the crosshairs of testimony that contradicted itself, and then they had them in a lie, and the lie. And the lie, and so in. That's right. That's right. Now, there's a lot of ways we could punish. But notice we're not burning Alma and Amulek. Right. Now, th there's a reason for that. Uh, now, <laughs> now he says, well, I have the power to do it. Chief Judge says, I could do it. I have the power to do it, so why aren't you talking? Yeah, well, no, there's a reason. Okay, now, but before we get there, and I know I'm jumping around a little bit. I want you to hear the other battle that's going on here. And I think it's, it's really pretty cool. Because if you're just looking, if you're just reading through the Book of Mormon, like, hey, I'm trying to burn my way through the Book of Mormon, uh, and I'm going to have it done before Christmas, and I'm rocking and rolling, I'm doing my 30 minutes a day, and I'm moving stuff like that. <laughs> Interesting story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's Alma and Amulek. Alma drops a little hummer in here. And, it, and in some ways, it feels like it comes a bit out of left field until you see what he's doing. And that's what happens in Alma 13. Alma 13 is this interesting little sidebar that sets up what Alma's trying to say to them. Here's Alma 13. Brethren, he says, I would cite your minds forward to the time, because Jesus hasn't come yet. Okay. The Lord God gave these commandments unto his children, and remember he ordained priests. Uh, now, two, and those priests were ordained after the, use an interesting word here, order. We might say quorum, or we might say priesthood he was they were ordained after the order of his son 
in a manner that thereby the people might know in what manner to look forward to his son for redemption. Now, he's about to tell them what is the whole purpose of this whole thing. And I'm not even today going to touch verse 3, which is one of the deepest probably uh, information that I, in the Book of Mormon about the preexistence, I think. Is good, you could make a good argument this has to do with the preexistence. But he's going to go through there, and then he's going to say, if we're looking at traditions, and the, the first nine verses of Alma 13 are this quote, and it could be a quote. It's coming from somewhere, and thus it is amen. He's, or it could be part of a sermon he gave somewhere else. We don't know. Anyway. He's just going to say, now, concerning this holy order of the priesthood, verse 11, they were called after this holy order were sanctified and everything. Um, you should humble yourselves in verse 14. Humble yourselves even as the people in the days of Melchizedek. Why is Alma going to start talking about Melchizedek in the middle of battling with these guys about their sins? Why is he pulling the Melchizedek card? I know. That's it. Okay. Think. Let me go back to verse 2. And those priests, the Lord, verse 1, the Lord ordained priests after his holy order, which was after the Son of God, and 2, and those priests were ordained after the order of his, his son. Why is he pulling the Melchizedek priesthood, or Melchizedek card? It's establishing, it's establishing something. It's establishing what? who he is and what order he works under, who Alma is. He just told them. Because remember, the Nahors don't believe in a redemption. They don't believe in a remission of sins. doesn't matter what you've done. Everybody's going to heaven. Sins don't matter. But if somebody's going to declare Christ and, re and how you are redeemed, that's going to come from a priest or an order of Melchizedek. And I am one of them. That's me. So I have, so here's another witness. You know, I have Amulek, yep. But the Spirit's going to bear witness, but I am a priest of Melchizedek, and I am here to preach Christ and his redemption, and that there will be a redemption and a remission of sins. He goes way back. Yeah. We, we want traditions? Let me give you a tradition. I'm of the order of Melchizedek. Yeah. No, in fact, we're going we're gonna to find out. That, uh, Mormon is going to make it clear in our writings that this order of Melchizedek is going to fight against, is going to come in direct opposition to the order of Nahor. It, it, there, there's a battle, and it's going to feel like the, the, the war in heaven. There's a battle of orders. Who has the power? 
uh, and and these chief priests understood this really, really clearly. At least they're claiming it, man. They are. Okay. So all of this is about. Um, uh, again, I'm not going to go because he's going to tell them. Verse 18. And Melchizedek, having exercised great faith, received the office of, of the high priesthood, did preach, did preach repentance unto the people. And behold, they did repent. And Melchizedek did establish peace in his land. Therefore, he was called the Prince of Peace, and he did reign under his father. Oh, like me. <laughs> okay, so. Now, in my research, I did find something else that I, I, that was a little bit interesting. If you go to the Pearl of Great Price, and you look about what Melchizedek did. I found a little disturbing verse, and I'm trying to remember what chapter. It's probably probably six or seven, anyway. But look at this from the Joseph Smith translation from the JST. Now, Melchizedek was who? A man of faith who wrought righteousness, and when a child, he feared God. And stopped the mouths of lion, and he did one other thing. And he quenched the violence of fire. By tradition, the people that knew about Melchizedek, according to the Joseph Smith translation, knew Melchizedek could stop fire. Whoa. Now, did they have that? I don't know. I just, I just think it's fascinating. If they had that knowledge, then one of those things that might come with the burning might have been a test of a priest of Melchizedek. Possible. A taunting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you do it? Let's see who has. Let's see who's got the power. That's exactly it. Let's see who's better here. Because remember, in the in the discussions they're going to have with Alma and Amulek after the martyrdom, it's all about who has the power. Is the power under the order of Nahor? Or is the power under the order of Melchizedek, and who wins? The people that were taunting Christ and saying, you can't save yourself. Yeah, that's right. And I have the power to kill you. What are you doing? We won. They burned. You lost. Me big. Yeah, that's right. We won. Yeah. Maybe. Claim to have the ability to quench the violence of fire. And so. Maybe they did, maybe they did. They would have thrown these people into the fire and said, use your priesthood to quench the violence of fire. Let's see how you do. So you, you know, and, and it's an interesting thing. But I get all lost in this tradition thing anyway, because I really don't give a rip how old a tradition is. It doesn't make any difference to me at all. Yeah. Anywhere. Yeah, but you're going to have to figure out how true it is. You know, to track that sucker down. No, you don't. You don't. Yeah. Right. And and a witness. Oh, yeah, good point. Good point. It doesn't quench the fire, it quenches the violence. Yeah, yeah, great point. Great point. 
All right. So let's so now let's finally get to 14. Now, this is a close reading, guys, uh, and I do, and it's one of those areas where it's a little bit vague. Uh, so bear with me. Well, thi- these two verses could be interpreted a lot of different ways, and you can decide how you want to interpret it. But listen to what happens here. Zeezrom is going crazy. Okay, see ya. Zeezrom is going crazy because uh, he sees what they're about to do. I'm guilty. These men are spotless. Uh, Verse, this is verse 7 of Alma 14. Uh, he began to plead from that time forth. They reviled, saying, Thou art possessed of the devil. They spit on him, and they cast him out among them. And who else gets cast out here? All those who believed in the words which had been spoken by Alma and Amulek, and they cast them out. So we get this casting out process of Zeezrom, but also everybody that was believing Alma and Amulek. They're all being cast out. Almost. And they sent men to stone, cast stones at them. Kind of an Old Testament thing to do. But this is the part that I don't know. And I could make an argument either way, guys. And they brought their wives and children together. The question is, whose wives and children? And and I've seen one argument for the men were cast out and the women and children were the ones that were were burned. Uh, And they make a, and there's an argument for under the, under the uh, on the uh, Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement, that you cast one goat out into the wilderness and you burn on the burnt offering the, another goat, and that this was this might have been that, and that, and that's that's a real possibility. But there's another reading if you look at their women and children. Specifically, this might be who amulets. And his family. Now, I do know that it, it'll say later on that uh, part of why Amulek mourns after this whole thing is that his father and his family aren't part of this. He, he's rejected by his father and his family. We know that. But Amulek didn't go by there as a <laughs> He wasn't identifying that way. You just had to throw that in there, didn't you? <laughs> this could easily be. And they brought Amulek's families, wives, and children together. And whosoever believed or had been taught to believe in the word of God. Because when Amulek starts preaching this whole thing, what does he tell the crowd? Yes, he does. And he says, and this man, Alma, came and taught my family and has blessed my family. Alma did a great thing. He came and blessed my family. So there's an argument to be made, and I, and again, however you look at this, they brought their wives and children, which could have been more, could have just been amulets. I have a tendency to lean towards the fact that I think this was a personal attack against Amulek. 
So now when you're going to say, okay, hey, these were great believers and the Christian martyrs and wow, they had great faith. This is a father watching his family get burned up. That's beyond, I don't even know how you, you do that, right? And now you see why it is nine, they take Alma and Amulek, carried them forth to the, carried them is an interesting word. They're going to haul them over there to the place of martyrdom that they might witness. So now they're going to witness. Now, after the whole thing is done and, and they're not going to be protected, uh, and then they're, what's going to happen here? And I'm, I'm hurrying. They, they will. But you've got, you've got a grieving dad that's got to watch the whole thing. That's, wow. Okay, now. Look at, look at 14. This is kind of where I want to kind of finish up with. Came to pass after the bodies had been cast into the fire. Uh, they stood before Alma and Amulek. He smote his hand upon their cheeks and said, After what ye have seen, will ye preach again unto this people that they shall be cast into a fire of brimstone? Okay, we just proved that, okay? 15. Behold, ye see that ye had not power. He saved himself. Why couldn't he save? He said he could save others. Why didn't he save himself and get off this cross? Okay, it is a, it has echoes of that. Don't you see that you don't have the power? Okay. Now, 16. Uh, Mormon wants us to know. Now, this judge was after the order and faith of Nahor, who slew Gideon. Okay. So they're not gonna, they're not gonna answer. 19, came to pass that the judge stood before them. Why don't you answer the words of the people? Know ye not that I have power to deliver you unto the flames. My power is bigger than your power. My Nahorism is bigger than your Melchizedekism. I have the power you don't. See, you couldn't save them. They died. You can't lose yourself. My power is bigger than your power. Okay. 20, will you stand and judge this people and condemn our law? If you have such great power, why do you not deliver yourselves? 21, how shall we look when we are damned? I mean, they're just, they're just, it is this, it is this battle going on. And then ultimately we know how this finishes. And then the last one, 24, the judge says and smote them again. If ye have the power of God, if you have the power of God, if you be the son of God, you know, if you have the power of God, deliver yourself from these bands, and we will believe that that word that the Lord will destroy this people. Okay? And then 25, the power of God was upon Alma and Amulek, and they rose and stood upon their feet. Okay, so anyway, um, let me just let me just kind of wrap it up uh, with with this because I just think this is such a fascinating. You watch this play out, and you're just watching these forces of evil and the forces of the priesthood battling back and forth against each other, and in the short run, it looks like evil's winning out, <laughs> doing pretty well, uh, and then ultimately. 
after they've condemned themselves enough, then then they're going to rise and stand on their feet, kind of like what will happen, I guess, at the second coming. So any responses to that? I mean, that's that's a lot. It's quite a just an incredible story. And there's so much going on if you really do a close reading of this. That's why I always keep saying, read slow. <laughs> there are times to read and get through and feel the spirit. And let the Book of Mormon lift your day and stuff like that. And then there are times to study. Dig in, take it apart word by word, and and the Book of Mormon has depth upon depth if you look for it. Okay, yeah. It's interesting that Alma involves Melchizedek, but it seems to me that as you study the, the kings, that Benjamin is the one who runs a parallel to Mel, uh, Melchizedek. In a lot of ways. Wicked and iniquitous people, and he gathers all the preachers and the holders and instead of prophets and he preaches repentance unto his people and gets them on the right path and by the time he's ready to pass on the kingdom and as he passes through the veil he's able to bless them yeah Yeah, King Benjamin, and I still believe that King, that Benjamin was probably not born Benjamin. I think he was born with another name, but Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was the uniter of tribes. Okay, and he had, and he had Judah and anyway. So anyway. Well, thank you. Uh, good class. Um, it's a lot here. Um, pray that you get a chance to kind of look back over this and see, see what you think you see. Because I'm just looking at one little angle. There's a lot I left out uh, on this. So anyway, uh, bury my testimony. It's true. It's good stuff. Uh, and have a great week. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And thank you for joining us for another Monday morning class. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions about future topics that we could discuss, or if you had any questions concerning something that you heard in the class, please drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. As always, if you happen to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, please come in and join us on a Monday morning. We'd love to see you and identify who you are. If the podcast itself is resonating with you, go ahead and click subscribe uh, so that Apple can figure out where we are. We'd love to, to hear from you. So again, thank you for coming, and we'll see you for another Monday morning class.